Shamai hello, my name is Sam Cook, the TV writer at Wales Online, and welcome to this podcast. Over the course of the next half an hour, we'll be hearing from some of this country's biggest stars, from where they got their big break, to struggles that they may have faced along the way. In this week's episode, we'll be putting actor and founder of Cowhouse Films, Alexander Vlahos, in the spotlight. Alexander Vlahos, how are you doing? Very good, Sam. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> no problem. No problem at all. And I, I suppose the, the first place I'd like to start, Alex, is Vlahos. Where dad, does that name come from? My dad's Greek. My dad's Greek uh, and my mum's Welsh. So I've, um, they always used to say, I don't, I don't understand how you've become an actor. There's no actors in my family. I'm, my, I'm the first. And um, I'm like, the Greeks and the Welsh are the most passionate countries I've ever been a part of. And it's like, is there any, was there any other option for me than to be on the stage with, with, a, with that bloodline going through me? But yeah, uh, my dad's Greek. Was acting always the career for you? Was that always something that you knew you wanted to go into? I, I, well, I originally wanted to be an editor, <laughs> which is such a bizarre niche thing. I knew I loved the industry. Because what I would do when I was like sort of 13, 14 was that I had a video camera, a uh, video um, camcorder, and I would get my friends, this is the sort of height of Jackass, the TV show, and the sort of guerrilla style filmmaking. And I, my, me and my friend, this core group of about nine or 10 of us in school. And I would take my camcorder to school every day and after school, and, and we would do pranks on each other and, and mess about. And I would come home and I, the enjoyment that I had, would I would edit it together. Um, and it was called Rank, R-A-N-K, Rank. Um, and I would then print off, I I'd, I'd sort of uh, burn the DVDs and then I would go into school and I would sell them. So I, I was like an entrepreneur, jackass, Johnny Knoxville type person. But the enjoyment that I had was editing. And then I did work experience when I was 16. At, an, at, a, at a post-production company, um, a place called Pyramid, which is no longer here now in Cardiff. And um, I realised, <laughs> no disrespect to any editors, but it's quite a lonely career. You sort of sit in a dark room. And this was back before, you know, real digital stuff. So it was like loading avids and, you know, big files, big videotape things and recordings. And I just, um, I just thought, oh, this is actually isn't for me. It's not as, in, as interesting as I thought it was going to be. And um, thank God... There's a woman in my um, in my comprehensive school in, in Ken Harry, Welsh language school, um, called Lori Cannon. She was my drama teacher, and she saw me. She sort of hovered above me while I was typing out my UCAS form, looking at media stuff like media roles, and she sort of kind of this hand came over me and she sort of stopped and she said, and she sort of sat in my seat and she applied for all the drama schools. At the time, I thought how cheeky, <laughs> but looking back, I. I'm so grateful to her because she basically dictated a path for me, which I was sort of kind of, I don't know, meandering is a really good word. I was meandering through life, thinking that I would find myself, I'd land on my two feet, you know, but actually she sort of said, you need to go to drama school, you've got a talent. Um, I got into Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama, 2006, and sort of experienced... I was naive. I basically walked into that drama school having no idea about how many people applied. I genuinely thought when I auditioned and I got my recall and then I got in, I thought, what an easy process. Everyone should do it. And then I realised that 2,500 people apply every year to every drama school individually. And I was like, oh, okay. So I'm part of a very small selected group. And I was just 18. And I guess they called me, you know, my... It wasn't my nickname per se, but I was sort of dubbed the Romeo of the year. I was the sort of cherub-faced, you know, romantic lead of a young boy. So I was very lucky, actually, that I sort of 
was given all those opportunities in, in Royal Welsh. And yeah, that's how it sort of started, graduating in 2009. Were the people around you, did they ever think that that could be what you were going to do, be an actor? Well, hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Because I say this now to people and they're like, of course, you're always destined to be on the stage, you know, desperate for attention, being the class clown. I have ADHD um, and I was only recently diagnosed, by the way. So like I got diagnosed only about two months ago. But I tell all my friends who I've just been recently diagnosed with ADHD and they say, only? Like as if they've always known, which is always nice when people say, oh, but um, I genuinely think that what my ADHD is has being masked by finding a career very early on. My first ever job was when I was 14. I got a job on Pop McCombe for two weeks. I got paid £360, right? But it was in a cheque. Wow, is how, you know, that's old school. school. Yeah. yeah. And my mum said, well, you've earned it. What do you want to spend it on? And I think I bought a Nintendo 64 uh, with it. And, Who wouldn't? And- I know, right? That, that, so, that's just what you do with that kind of money when you're that young. I, I also, I got two weeks off school and... Yeah, I was the class clown. I was dying for people's attention, trying to make them laugh. And, and also, I, re- I wasn't a rugby player, which is, you know, sort of sacrilege in, in Wales. Um, didn't like it very much. So I found that if I, could, if I wanted to get girls' attention, I would go and do drama, I'd be on the stage. I'd get their attention in a much more theatrical way. Um, but yeah, looking back, I guess it had to be this, because my, what my ADHD, the skills that my ADHD gave me, well, because I don't think it's a deficit at all. I think it's actually something that I, fun, funny enough, really benefited from, you know, in a really great way. Is that it has nurtured and masked my career and its potentials, which I think is a wonderful thing. I look back on, you know, how long I've had it for and think, well, thank God I stumbled upon a career path and was successful in it from such an early age, that meant that my ADHD was sort of catered for. I can't imagine ever working in an office, you know? So, like, the idea that what my ADHD would be bringing to that might be disruptive, but in a, in, on, on a set or in a rehearsal room, it's actually encouraged. The energy, the opinions, the hyperactivity of wanting to produce stuff. And, yeah, I'm sort of, um, I, I, you know, I look back on, I can't, there's that golden question, what else could you have done if, if it wasn't this? I have no answer. I, mm. I really don't have no answer for it. I, I'm like, you know, I have my own production company now and I'm, I'm a director, but it all falls within the same bell curve, right? It all falls within the same love of this industry that I have. And I think that's not uncommon either. People get into the industry and then they try different things i mean i've spoken to you before about working with it's my shout which is a platform that encourages people to get into the industry do you enjoy that aspect of the media weirdly so i think i've been acting since i was 14 and now 34 about to be 35 it's a long time in the industry and what's happened is that not that my passion my passion has never waned it's it's about finding out mental health wise what drives me in the morning so Back in the day, you know, just graduating drama school, those 5 a.m. pickups to go on set for 7 a.m. to film in a castle like Bermerlin was really enjoyable. Now, less so, just because I maybe that I'm less career-orientated in terms of acting and I just want to be successful rather than it being all about the acting. 
Um, and I've been very lucky that, you know, I've directed lots of films. Like you said, the It's My Shout one won Best Drama. Um, and the connections that I've made through directing has actually made me a more content and calm person because I'm not putting all my eggs in one basket. I'm not desperately waiting for my agent to call. When's the next job? When's the next audition? I'm continuously creating my own work so that when these, when these auditions do come along, I'm not, um, yeah, I'm not desperate or not like, you know, craving um, the actual job. I'm sort of always busy. And I think um, I'm very lucky that writing and directing and my own production company, Cowhouse Films, and doing all those things in parallel with acting allows me to actually have a really fulfilling and happy life you know mm. I'm, I'm, I'm right now I'm, I'm you know I'm in, I'm in development with, a, with a, we've written a few me and my best friend Evan Williams who played the Chevalier in Versailles me and him have written a feature film which we're about to which we're currently in you know shopping it in the market for to to make um you know short films are like my bread and butter I've done music videos so it's um I'm just lucky that and also like in a couple of weeks I'm about to go and shoot uh, act in a movie in Sicily in Italy for six weeks so it's many things many hats continuously and I realized that that is my inner tempo that's what makes me get up in the morning you know not those 5am pickups and relying on that sort of aspect of the job you talked about this drive to be successful there what do you cite as the moment that a person become successful you got asked that in drama school in our third year what do you define as success and the answers that came before me were working at the rsc west end debut national theater leading a tv show you know success is i don't believe that i have worked a day in my life that's success Really? I, yeah, I think because I, well, you know, success also comes in, you know, it, not to get into the sort of nitty gritty of it, but it is a financial thing as well. Are you successful? Can you pay your mortgage? Do you know, can you put food on the table? Um, and those things are part of that. That is success. But for me, I genuinely love this industry and have worked solidly in this industry since 2009. I think the longest period of out work that I've ever had was during the pandemic. And, you know, and that's not because of me. So like, so I'm actually, that's what I think of success. When people say, oh, I hope people think Alex, you know, Alexander Blas is, is a successful actor. But I know that I'm successful, maybe not because I didn't land that lead in Game of Thrones per se, but I'm, I'm successful because I'm continuously working, continuously having, you know, I'm continuously getting paid for the stuff that I want to do. And it's not really work, you know, work for me is, you know, it's kind of what, the, what I call work in this industry is, is, is the PR run, you know, the, the brass junkets, like though, though that's work because the project is long gone and you're having to sort of <laughs> regurgitate and re-remember stuff from maybe six, eight months ago. And you're like, God, you know, but like that's, that's the work aspect, mm. the filming, the acting, all that directing, just complete joy. Do you enjoy that process? Do you enjoy the press side of things? Because I've spoken to a lot of actors and creatives who yeah. clearly don't enjoy it. And I totally understand being on the other side, you know, and yeah, this, these people, because these people will have had to chat about these things over and over and over and over again. And it, it's become sort of like a, like a script 
Yeah, then that's and that's the hardest part is that the question sometimes can be a bit tedious. So you end up giving almost vox poppy sort of punchline answers, right? Things that will just either make the headline or will get you out of the situation to the next question. Um, I do enjoy it. I, I find if I enjoy it, if it's, the, if, if it's a project that I enjoyed working on. But the, the tricky thing is when you end up having to talk about certain projects that maybe that you didn't particularly have a pleasant time on. You know, that, that and, and also the hardest part actually is remembering stuff because you might be already on to the next project or by that time, maybe you've done two projects and this, and they're talking about, and if it's like something like episodic drama, you know, like for example, Sanditon, we filmed Sanditon season two and season three in one sweep, but there's a year gap between two and three when it came out. So they're talking, sometimes they'll, they'll be doing, you'll be doing press about episode one of season two and you've already finished season three shooting and they're talking about a specific moment. The thing that I get in trouble for <laughs> is I've got a nickname online as Mr. Leaky. I'm kind of like the Tom Holland of the of the Welsh world in terms of I'm, I find it very hard to filter, especially if I'm passionate about it. I kind of want them to be as passionate as I am about the project. I'm, I'm, so I'm, I'm, I will, you know, I won't necessarily give away spoilers per se, but I, but I have in the past had many conversations with many publicists and many media departments saying, Alex, you can't say that, or you will, we'll get that edited out later. And I'm like, oh, just because I'm, I think I get too excited for myself. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I mean that's a that that has to happen though. I feel that's being well, rather real. Sam. Rather it be that way than the other way, right? I think I, I you know, I, I people have said to me that they like interviewing me because I because I have a passion for this for this for this world. Um, better that better to be edited and doctored later and be someone that has you know enthusiasm for the work that they've done rather than having them you know for you per se to be able to have an interview with someone who doesn't care. For you, for a journalist, that's that's you're having to try and create a piece of work or like you know a, a, an article or something out of nothing because they gave you nothing. And I'm I can't, I'm kind of the opposite. I I give too much. <laughs> You've talked about working on some bigger projects such as Versailles and Merlin. How does that compare to some of the independent stuff that you work on? Yeah, well, well, usually it's 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 actually time. The time that they allow themselves to film these big projects um, means that, you know, you can shoot six episodes in six months on something like Outland. You know, that's like a month and a half, basically, if you work it out. And that's kind of mad. Um, that, that, and they are, because the money's there and the support is there, you know, if you think about it, Merlin and Sanderton were both shows that I joined, but the show was already quite successful. You know, so, so the, the crew are the same. You're 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 joining up. You're joining something that's already up and running. It's a well-oiled machine. With something like Versailles being there at the starting point, and and, and that bring and that starting it all the way up was kind of um was really interesting to be a part of. Compared to the indies, I guess yeah, it's just time, time and money, and uh, there's a sense also with indie filmmaking or indie shows in, in like low-budget stuff is that it's a it's a we're all in it together vibe. Which is actually really fun. You really feel much more connected to every single member of the crew. You know, I I went through you know eight months on Merlin, you know six months on on Outlander, and struggled to remember people's names. Not because I didn't intentionally want to, but because it's such a big machine. So I guess there's no there's not a closeness 
there, I think, or, or a familiarity, which sometimes can hinder the work, I think. But um, both, both, both options are good options, because in the end of the day, if the work is good, then it transcends how it was made. People will watch something and they won't, if the show is good, they won't question how long it took to make, how many cuts they had to do, what was the process like. If, as, long as, it's, as long as the end product is valuable and worthwhile and enjoyable to watch, then what does it really matter if it was filmed on a shoestring budget or not? Exactly. And both shows like that have rather big fan bases and therefore people obviously it, like almost that element of anonymity disappears because you've been well, on a big show. I, I, I have been so blessed that if you think about it, Merlin, Versailles, Sanditon and Outlander, four huge shows with four very strong, very vocal fan bases. Do you enjoy that? I mean, some actors go through their entire life never being able to do a Comic-Con, per se, right? Never do a convention. I do them all the time because I'm so lucky to be able to have four fan bases follow me around and follow my career. I do enjoy it. When I did Merlin, it was the biggest shock of my life. Oh, I can and imagine. I think, like, you, you were quite young. 22. 22 to play Mordred. And I came on to season five. Also, I knew that Mordred was such an important integral character in the mythology of, of, of Merlin. So I knew that I was stepping into really big shoes because I was replacing Asa Butterfield. It was, I, I basically just wasn't prepared. No, and also it wasn't anything, it wasn't a detriment to the BBC or Shine Media who created it to help me navigate that. They told me. Colin Morgan, Merlin himself, said, listen, things are going to change. You know? And I was like, oh, okay, right. But nothing really can prepare you because you're not prepared yourself to be able to witness what that does. And you said, yeah, anonymity. Anonymity kind of goes. Um, I still get people talking to me about Mordred. And that was 13, 14 years ago. Like, it's insane that a show, something as wonderful as it was, still lives on in the hearts and minds of people. And that it becomes a new generational thing. This is what I've noticed is that eight-year-old, eight to... 12-year-old girls and boys are like, Merlin. And I'm like, whoa, like you weren't even born when the last episode came out. That's wonderful. That is the biggest plus. And I have to say that all the fan bases, Outlander, Samson, Versailles, Merlin, are, have been so and are still so supportive of everything else that I do. That's, what's, that's when the fandom, that the word fandom becomes so important is that they come with you onto your other projects, you know, um, and, and are interested in your work because they like you. You've also done quite a lot of work in audio drama. I know you work a lot with Big Finish Productions. Um, tell us a little bit more about that. Well, I, yeah, so I, this is at the same time when Merlin was, I was filming Merlin at the time, and there's a wonderful um, producer, creator, director called Scott Hancock, who, who was going through the ranks at the time. He was an assistant director. He had this idea for, to, um, to do, Dorian Gray, but the idea that Dorian Gray existed in real life, um, lived on, didn't didn't stab you know the, the portrait and kill Basil and all that, and and but he was a real character and he met Oscar Wilde and Oscar Wilde then wrote the book, so he became infamous through Oscar's work, but actually was a real person. So sort of like a dark uh, dark horror thriller sort of show, um, and I was the the face of it. Thinking that we'd only get one season, and last year we celebrated ten years of Dorian Gray, 
Because the wonderful thing about audio is that even though I don't look to anyone, my voice can still sound like he has a paint, a portrait in the attic. So I love audio work and been so lucky to do Doctor Who video games and, you know, play opposite uh, um, Alex Kingston in The Diary of a Song. And I've just worked with, you know, I won't, it's a spoiler, so I can't say anything, but who it is, but like my doctor and completely geeked out. Like completely, like it was just a two-hander. It was just between me and this wonderful man, and I kind of just lost my. <laughs> I just was like, "Oh my god, this is like, um, yeah, this was it was it was kind of a pinch me moment." But again, just joyful, and I love working with them, and they're um, they're such a good, uh, such a good team, you know, Jason mm-hmm. Hay Gallery and Nick- Nicholas Briggs, who you know who own it, and then also the Gary Russell Scott Hancocks of the world, all the people that have helped nurture it. Um, it's such a great medium to, to explore. You get to just, you know, Dorian existed in, you know, from 1890 all the way up until modern day. So we got to do what, like, episodes with Dorian on the Vespa with mods. We also got to do him in California. Like, he wasn't a time traveler per se. He just, it was an immortal, like, you know, Captain Jack Harkness, that, that idea that he just lives on. Mm. So we just got to jump through different periods of life. And it was just mad. You talked about Doctor Who there, and in Wales, obviously, it's such a big thing. Now, Russell T. Davis is coming back to show run. Would you consider a guest part or, you know, even the lead role at some point? I keep getting told off by my agent because I keep manifesting that I want to be the Doctor. Right now, in the grand scheme of things, and good, this is good, we are at a place where a white cis male shouldn't be the lead. And I think right now it isn't my time because because that's who I am. And that is also a really good thing that what's happening. Shooty and Jody and all these wonderful doctors that have come are perfect for what's happening right now. They are. They're just it's of the time, current, uh, and it's not pushing boundaries. They're not doing because they're wonderful, talented actors. You know, it's not ticking boxes. It's not. It's actually brilliantly cast show. And I've always sort of said, oh, I'll be the doctor one day. And I'll be the doctor one day. But then part of me has just gone, they've never had a Welsh master. And I tend to play a lot of evil characters. So I would love that opportunity. I know, um, uh, is it Sasha? Sasha, that, that's just finished. with yeah, Sasha Dewan. Dewan, yeah. Um, well, I thought it was wonderful. Well, I could play the Welsh master. Hey, well, start the campaign here. That's what I say. I, listen, you, you say that the campaign's already started. <laughs> oh, well, there we are. There no, are I mean, not, not, not publicly anyway. But yes, let's, let's officially start the campaign now. <laughs> and we always end uh, these podcasts with two questions, Alex. The first of which, if you had the opportunity to have a chat with your younger self, what would you say to him? Knowing what you know now. Don't be so quick to think that everything has to happen now. That's the biggest thing. I was very determined, sometimes to my own detriment when I left drama school, to, to be the person that I am now. I didn't, I, there was no, I didn't have a long-term plan. It was a very short term. Uh, and I made decisions on auditions, potentially, or things that were bigger than me and felt completely sad and down about what what happened about them you know decisions that i made that maybe i look back and think oh i could have done that better 
but I am where I am right now because of the other choices that I made. You know, working a lot more in theatre was actually a really good thing for me. I, you know, went to Broadway with Macbeth, with Kenneth Branagh, and that was a huge sort of like life lesson of six months working with the Meister, the, the Mastro, you know, the master of, of Shakespeare, Ken. And so, yeah, looking back, I would say just, you know, take your time, take a breather. It's all going to, it's all going to work out. That, that would be the biggest sort of statement. And question number two, where would you like to see your career go next? I am never going to retire from acting ever. But I have found a new lease of life, I guess, with my directing work. Um, and like I said to you at the start of this podcast, I'm currently in development with making my feet with my first directing my first feature film. Um, and it looks like it's gonna happen. So so I think where I see myself is we're having my production company be an actual producing house of, you know, not just me directing, but other uh, you know, commissioning other work. Um I want Cowhouse Films, my production company, to be the equivalent in, of A24 in the UK. That's 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 the goal. That's the and it's and it's also not that far. That's not not achievable. It's very achievable. So that's the dream: is to to be a to be a you know, you know. I, I look up to people like Craig Roberts, you know, who was an actor who then ends up working in a lot in you know directing and stuff like that, and, and he's quite inspirational. And you know, Zach Braff in America, those those actor turned directors who now got a name for themselves as both that's the dream is to be able to have both things going in unison rather than having to flick between so yeah but i'm on the right track i'm on the right track well alex i cannot wait to see what happens next from all of us thank you very much we hope you've enjoyed this episode of in the spotlight for more tv and showbiz news subscribe to our newsletter on walesonline.co.uk Thank you for listening and stay tuned for future episodes.